Hello and welcome to the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor Podcast. I'm Joel Swider, and I'm an attorney with Hall Render, the nation's largest healthcare-focused law firm. I'm joined today by Matthew Gannum, the CEO and co-founder of National Breathe Free Sinus and Allergy Centers. Matt, thanks for joining me today. Uh, thanks for having me, Joel. Much appreciated. Looking forward to it. Likewise. So before we delve into Breathe Free and your business model, which has been very successful, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your background and the experiences that prepared you for where you are today. Um, I know you grew up in the D.C. suburbs in Rockville, Maryland. Do you ever, did you ever think at that time that you'd end up in the healthcare industry? Uh, that, that's, that's a good question. Yeah, Rockville is a good 20 miles outside of D.C., um, no, I, and no, I didn't, I didn't have any family members or anything like that in, in the healthcare industry. And, you know, we interview mid-level providers, meet with doctors, nurses, things like that. And we say like, Hey, how did you know you wanted to be in healthcare? It's almost always I've known since I was five or I've known since I was a kid, you know, my mom's a nurse or whatever that, that looks like for me, that wasn't it. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I thought, um, although I I'm five foot 11 now, um, I was five foot 11 in middle school. I thought I was going to be an NBA player. Clearly not in the cards, unfortunately. Um, and then after that, after I, I blew my knee out in high school, I actually wanted to be an attorney. Um, I interned at a law office. I did some mock trial stuff in the summer. And I still like my, my minors in political science. I thought I was going go to go to law school. And then probably like midway through college, I just, uh, you know, I, I had another internship in a law firm. And it's just I don't know, it, it didn't seem like a good great fit for me at the time. Um, so no, definitely did not think I was going to be doing this. So yeah. <laughs> that's a good question. So Matt, I know you hold a bachelor's degree in communications and political science from the University of Pittsburgh. You earned your MBA from the George Washington University in DC. At at that point, you know, fast forwarding in your history, what was your career aspiration at that time? Yeah, so I finished um, business school in about uh, the, I think the end of 2012. So I was about a little over 10 years ago. At that time, I had just started in medical sales, actually just started at the ear, nose and throat company um, that, that got acquired by Stryker in 2018. And, and that that six-ish years or so um, sort of prepared me to an extent for what we're doing now. Um, my career aspiration was to to grow and, 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 um, and continue to manage people, which is what my experience had been in before, just in a different industry and eventually become, you know, whether it's a national director or VP of sales or ultimately even maybe a CEO of, of, of a medical device company. So, you know, I, I at that point, I'd been in medical sales for about two years and I only did it for about another six months before I got into management. And then, you know, I got moved all over the country and things like that. Um, but, you know, it, it, I moved up quickly. But at the same time, I knew that I was more of a, a self-starter. And as you as these companies get bigger and they get acquired, you know, there are these systems and it's not like, the, you know, like the federal government or something like that. But it, it's a lot harder. You can't be nimble. You can't move quickly. You can't react to the market and make changes that are you know, best for the business because there's there's processes and things in place, which, of course, obviously, in a lot of these cases have been successful. But for a, for a, for a startup. You know, moving quickly and being able to react and help customers um, in our old in, our, in my old life was was super impactful, and that's something that I just enjoy. So, so the the thrill, I suppose, or the challenge of a startup is something that um, you know I really enjoy. So, um, I knew once I got into where I thought I was going at that time that it probably wasn't something I was going to do long term, but I knew that there was still a lot to learn. Yeah, 
Sure. So at what time, at what point then did you meet Dr. Khanna, the co-founder of, of National Breathe Free? Yeah. So that's, 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 this is always a good story. Um, I started in March of 2012 with, with this company that is now Striker ENT. Um, ENT for people that don't know is ear, nose and throat. Um, so he, he was one of the only customers that the company at the time had. Um, he's a fellowship trained rhinologist, which essentially means you go through residency as an ear, nose and throat doctor or an otolaryngologist technically. Um, and then you do a one to two year fellowship, which means you do specialized training. And, and as it relates to Dr. Khanna, rhinology is skull based sinus surgery, which is more advanced cases where they're doing, a, I don't want to get too technical, but a lot more advanced techniques up and around the skull base. So, you know, there's only a certain, a small handful of folks that are comfortable with that um, and have trained that way. So um, when I started, he actually, you know, he was the first customer we had. He taught me a lot about ENT, he taught me how to read a CT scan, you know, showed me, you know, abnormalities uh, on the imaging that would sort of lead towards someone that would need a procedural intervention uh, of their sinuses or their septum, which is, or their turbinates, which those two are, you know, the, the main um, factors in your breathing. Um, so I learned a lot from him. It's interesting. We grew up, um, he grew up in Rockville as well. Um, he's about five or seven, no, he's seven years older than me. And so I would, when I moved out West to California about a year and a half later, and then Vegas and ultimately Arizona, um, I would still come home for the holidays. I would see him. We were friendly. I'd meet him in Vegas and stuff like that during the NCAA tournament. And we were friendly. And obviously like we kind of kept each other in the loop on what was going on in, in, in ENT. Um, so you know, it, it's a full circle that we we started a practice in 2018 when just six years before, I literally had no idea of, you know, anything as it relates to ENT and he taught me a lot of it. So it was, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool story. Yeah, that's neat. You never know where uh, those relationships are going to, are going to take you. Um, so Matt, in, in less than five years, Breathe Free has grown from one location in DC to 17 operational sites across eight states with sounds like the 18th opening next month. Congratulations on that. Um, you said you have 225 employees, 17 clinics, um, about 500 patient encounters a day. You all employ 20 ENT surgeons and 37 mid-level providers at PAs and NPs. Obviously, you've, you've developed a formula that is scalable across a variety of geographical locations. Can you tell me more about the Breathe Free business model? Yeah. So um, just, just um, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's been a pretty cool ride just in a short amount of time. Obviously, you know, four and a half years ago or so feels like a lifetime ago. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's been something that that um, has has just been a great ride so far. Um, one, one caveat to your question, I suppose, is that that most of the physicians we work with are partners, just in case they're listening. Um, but, you know, I, I, I understand the sort of where you were going there. Um, I would, so what we, what we look for essentially is ENT is a really small specialty to begin with. I believe there's, uh, nearly 10,000 ENT physicians in the country. Um, a few years ago, some data came out that showed physicians in their seventies and sixties versus physicians in their forties and thirties. And what, what, and there was way more ENTs that were going to be on their way out than on their way in. So it's already sort of underserved to begin with. And I think that'll be something that continues to trend in that direction. Also, uh, a side note, it's it's generally one of the top three hardest residency programs to get in. Um, so you have to be super smart and you have to really want to do it. And the people that have like the highest scores and 
interview the best have the opportunity to be able to be an ENT. And, and what that means is you you have a quality of life. You're working a, pretty close to a nine to five and you still have a surgical you know, a uh, day or two where you can, where you're performing surgery. So it's sort of the best of both worlds. Um, but from a business model standpoint, we look for folks that want to perform, you know, office-based procedures. A lot of ENTs, you know, go to the hospital, there's, you know, added costs to patients, you know, risks with anesthesia, et cetera. And that's how ENTs were trained to be candid, just to do sinus surgery in the hospital. Um, there's long turnover times and, 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 you know, difficulties with the administration, so docs that are like, hey, I don't want to take call anymore. I don't want to, you know, go to the hospital. I want to do things in my office. I want to control my schedule, you know, but maybe I, I can't figure out from an infrastructure standpoint how to do that, right? Like I have a busy practice, but my staff can't really, you know, get get aligned and, and help me grow this office-based this office-based practice so that I can step away and spend more time with my family instead of spend time in the operating room. Um, so we we find physicians like that. And we provide an ecosystem for them that allows them to be doctors and just do what they do. So if there's any single thing that a non that the, the physician doesn't have to do, whether it's taking a call from an insurance company or dealing with payroll or a staffing issue or, you know, dealing with the landlord or anything like that, we essentially take that away from them and they only do what a doctor can do. So if it's a procedure or if it's reading a CT scan or, you know, a patient that's scheduled for a procedure has some questions that want to talk to the surgeon. They do that kind of th those types of activities during their day. And and candidly, if if they only have a few procedures and they, and, and and the and the mid level providers are comfortable and they're trained well and everything, they've been there a little bit. They just go home. They don't have to sit there and see thirty patients in the afternoon, which is what they would normally do. So um, yeah. I don't know if I answered your question, but we just essentially let surgeons be surgeons. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And and you know. One question I think that that um, that sort of begs is, I mean, do you think this model would work in other surgical specialties? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 the surgeon's most valuable time from from an ROI standpoint and from a patient care standpoint is to be doing things that that only they can do. So, for example, an ear, nose, and throat, a post op, you know, visit with a mid level provider is very simple, especially in an office based minimally invasive procedure. So, if you were going to have you know, uh, someone come back in, let's say for, I mean, it could be something in pain or spine or, or orthopedics, you know, orthopedic surgeons spend like two and a half or two days a week operating. And then two and a half days or so in the clinic, whether it's seeing someone that has like a torn ACL and, and you know, telling them how they can help them or seeing somebody that is having like a pain injection or something like that, that's pretty simple. Like, why not have someone that can do that, do that, and then you just operate four days a week or five days a week. And then we take the call away from you. You know, if there's a call with a post-op nosebleed, which is, you know, kind of standard in a, in a procedure for that we do, you know, we have a nurse or someone that, that, that takes the call and we pay them a little extra, but it takes that off of the doctor. So there's plenty of, you know, scenarios where this would be beneficial. Um, even in non-insurance-based things like IVF or, you know, even plastic surgery and things like that, because the surgeon's time is best spent doing these revenue generating procedures, but also procedures that people need. And so if you're booked out six weeks because you can only do one day or a day and a half in the operating room or whatever you're doing, we can make it so that you spend four and a half or five days doing that and patients get in faster. Mm -hmm. Well, and Matt, that leads me to another question, which is, you know, it seems like there's a clear sort of um, value proposition for providers. Um, 
what's the value proposition on the consumer, on the patient side? I mean, you mentioned scheduling, you know, maybe much easier. Are there other things from a marketing and and just sort of value proposition that you can think of? Yeah. So it's it's actually interesting. It's one of the only times maybe in life, but definitely in medicine where essentially what's best for the practice from a business standpoint is also what's best for the patient clinically. Um, and, And every insurance carrier outside of one or two isolated Blue Cross Blue Shields, small Blue Cross Blue Shield plans cover the procedure. So the insurance companies see the value in it, that it works clinically, obviously, but not only that, it saves them money. Because as we know, you know, the the, the CEO of United Healthcare, obviously his job is to, or his or her job is to deliver shareholder value return. And how do you do that? Obviously you add, you know, companies to your policies, but then at the same time, you know, you have to make sure that we're doing things that make sense from a business standpoint while um, allowing, you know, uh, while, while allowing the right treatments to, to, for patients to have. So um, an office-based procedure, even though it pays the physician way more than they would make in the operating room, it, it can save up to 75% or more, depending on the site of service that they're taking it to, because ambulatory surgery centers that are standalone, you know, it, it, a doctor, something that a doctor might make two to 400 bucks on, um, the hospital would make, or the facility, the surgery center would make nearly $10,000 um, um, from that patient. Uh, depending on what specifically the doctor is doing. So even though the doctor only gets paid a couple hundred bucks, the facility's getting the entire thing. Whereas in the office, the doctor gets the entire payment that is less than the $10,000 and it's a like treatment. But then if you talk hospital, the reimbursement in a, in a hospital is, is significantly higher than a freestanding ambulatory surgery center. Um, and obviously there's added costs and things for hospitals. But if that same procedure gets done in a hospital, it might be fifteen to $20,000. Whereas in the office, it could be five to thousand to seventy five hundred, depending on what exactly the doc's doing. So the insurance company saves money. And if you're a patient with a, you know, let's say thousand dollar deductible and 20 percent coinsurance, you know, that's thousand dollar deductible is the same. But the 20 percent coinsurance is significantly less in an office based setting than it is in a facility based um, procedure. And you know, added costs for anesthesia or anything like that, you you don't incur because it's done under local, like getting a cavity filled. So there's a huge value proposition there. And then not only that, lastly, at the same time, you know, um, if you were going to have your sinuses done at a, a surgery center or hospital, nearly all cases, they're going to call you and say, hey, your estimated responsibility is 1800 bucks, you know, please bring it the day of, day of surgery. And if you essentially don't, they won't help you. Whereas we can you know, be flexible and set up payment plans and, and tell them, hey, you know what, you know, you could you could pay $300 a month for the next six months or whatever it is. Like, we don't need to, to take that up front. I mean, obviously, we're required by insurance contracts to try and get payment or collect payment from patients. We can't just, you know, say, hey, don't worry about it, but we can be flexible. So that's another value proposition. And on top of that, if the, doc, if the doctor is operating in the office five days a week, you have a, a large amount of flexibility. Like, let's say you you know, you don't have help for your kids three days a week. And, and you know that if it's on a Tuesday, you, you'd, it'd be way easier for you to have it. But in the operating room, the doctor's block is only on Thursdays, right? So what do we do then? So we, we have ultimate flexibility. I mean, we could even do cases on Saturdays if a patient can only do that or do it at night or super early in the morning or whatever it might be because it's, it's pretty quick. So um, it, it just provides the ultimate level of flexibility for patients. Matt, when when uh, we were preparing for the episode, you mentioned to me that you were involved in running several restaurants after you graduated from college. And, you know, speaking of this sort of value proposition, both on the 
provider side and on the patient side, really the intersection of those. Um, you mentioned to me that that running a medical medical practice has a lot in common with running a restaurant. Could you elaborate on that? I thought that was really an interesting analogy. Yeah, it's it's um it, it it is interesting. It's something that I never actually thought would you know. So when I was running restaurants, I never thought that it would really prepare me for anything. And to be candid, it's it's really hard work. It's a lot of hours, you know, at, at times of the day when most people don't work, obviously, right? Because you're serving people that aren't at work. So um, it, it's it's really challenging. And, and a lot of times people like didn't look at it favorably on a resume. Um, so I never thought it would really help me. Um, but it, it's interesting because, you know, you have a lot of transient employees in restaurants and take the providers out of it. You know, the the physician assistants or nurse practitioners or even even RNs at that. And obviously the physicians, everyone else. Like if you had a job at a front desk, it's like, you know, you're the hostess at the restaurant. You know, you can, if, if you don't like something, you could just go find another job. There's tons of them out there. And so you're essentially in both scenarios, the, the not, not always lowest paid employee, but a lot of times the employees with the least amount of experience and are, and the ones that tend to be the most transient in a restaurant and a, and, and a medical practice are the ones that if you want to come in, you talk to. They're the ones that almost ultimately decide when you come in. They're putting your appointment on the schedule. You know, if they're friendly, you're more likely to come. If they're not, you're more likely not to come. And so that's another thing that's interesting is, you know, the physician and also um, the physician is sort of like the chef, right? So they're in the back, your favorite steakhouse. You know, you don't see the chef. They're making sure everything's done correctly. You know, that the food's cooked the way it's supposed to be, presented the way it's supposed to be. And that's the same as a doctor. Or, or, or even a PA, they're going from room to room, they're taking calls, they're busy, they're answering emails. They don't know what the front desk person's saying. They don't know who the, what the medical assistant that's rooming the patient is telling the patient. They don't know, you know, if there's a patient or if someone's drawing blood, what's happening there? Is that putting getting put in the right place? And that's the same as a restaurant. The chef, a lot of the times, if they don't have super competent front, front of the house help in a restaurant, right, a, a, a dining room manager, so to speak, or whatever it might be, to make sure that the bartender is doing the right thing and the front desk or the, the hostess stand is, you know, being friendly and letting people know the right wait times and things like that. So there's so many parallels just in medicine. It's a service business, but they're not, they don't see it as a service business in most cases. It's, it really is though, because consumers have choices. You know, a lot of plans now you don't need a referral. You can go wherever you want. If you don't have a great interaction, you know, you could, you can essentially just, you know, make a new appointment. And so one other thing, the doctor can be great, but if the staff is rude or the office isn't well-kept, a lot of times you're going to lose that patient, just like a restaurant where if the food's great, but the staff's rude, not a place a lot of people want to go. On the flip side, if the staff's great and the food just wasn't up to par that day, like you may try it again. And that could be go the same for the doctor. Maybe the doctor ran an hour and a half behind, but the staff was great and they kept them engaged and let them know like, hey, this is, this is what's happening. We're going to take care of you. You know, here's a coffee or whatever it might be that we have. Um, you know, we'll make sure your next appointment is super favorable time for you. Like, take care of them. Obviously, in an in in insurance-based medical practice, you can't give anything away to a patient for free that, you, that you're required to charge for. Sometimes we'll give away like Starbucks gift cards if people are waiting a long time. But, you know, we can't say, hey, we're not going to charge you for your visit. But we could do that in a restaurant. You would give their food for free, right? So all of those similarities, there's so many parallels, you know, that, 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 exist between the two of them. And I didn't realize that being competent and comfortable hiring, you know, hourly employees or people that are going to work part-time 
or how to evaluate. You know, when you put a job up on Indeed for a medical assistant, you're going to get hundreds of applications in the same day in, in an urban area. How do I look through those resumes when there's not a, you're not really looking for experience? You're looking more for like the person because we know we could teach them that stuff. And, and that's the same in, in a restaurant, right? So like, how do you manage, you know, 300 applications for a, for a serving job? So it's the same skill set. Um, and then obviously it's people, right? So you're, you're, you're getting comfortable with that. But the actual, the way they run, if a well-run restaurant, if you transitioned or translated that to a medical practice and a medical practice became that well-ran, it would be, I mean, it, it's not the norm. I mean, you would probably, you know, go to your primary care doctor and wait 30 to 45 minutes and see them for five minutes. And so we, we also don't do that either, but um, there's just so many parallels. I mean, we could go, this is like a, this is a question we could probably talk about for the whole episode, honestly. Yeah. Well, Matt, I, I love that analogy because I think you're right. I think a lot of times, um, and I'm speaking mainly from the patient perspective, but you know, there's, there's not as much focus on the service aspect, but of course it is a service industry, the you know, the medical industry. And so how do you, and obviously that's something that, you know, when you're looking to partner with a physician, you know, and be able to say, look, you know, you, you can do your job you know, the best in the world, but, but part of the value I would imagine that breathe free is bringing to the table is we're going to get, we're going to surround you with those sort of the front of the house type people that are going to further promote, um, that, that good level of service and, and, um, quality. How do you screen for that from a, from an employment perspective? Do you have certain metrics that you like to, to use or how do you do that? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, when I was, when we only had one practice and I was doing it, I can tell you how I would do it. And then how do we, and then obviously anytime you, you know, expand and grow, it, it obviously becomes harder for, for quality control. Same with anything else like Starbucks. If there's 10 Starbucks in, in your town, it would be perfect, but there's not. So it's harder. Um, so it's all about people um, as we grow, but short-term, you know, I actually, one of the jobs that I did was for a, a corporate restaurant company and I was, it was my second job out of school. I did a management and marketing job at a, at a full service restaurant at first. This was a little more of a quick service um, uh, restaurant. But my job for the first year that I worked there was to approve every hourly hire, every hire besides the managers that, um, that any manager, there was like 15 units in the DC area at the time, wanted to hire. And all I was looking for was, did they smile? Did they show up on time? Are they engaging? Are they friendly? Because those are the things you can't teach. Like, you know, I can make someone show up on time. Like if I pressure them and things like that, you can't make someone be friendly. You can make them say the right words, right? And there's plenty of people that aren't friendly that say the right words. They just not, they're not welcoming. They're not saying it in the right way. They're not smiling. They're, they're not making eye contact. So those are so important. And obviously you need to screen as well for someone, you know, that, 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 that seems, you know, relatively with it and they, and they want to learn and they're engaged and they want to grow. Cause obviously those types of people are always going to do better in an environment of where they're learning, but I can't teach someone to be friendly. You just can't do it. It's just something that, so we're always looking for that. Uh, there's a couple other things. There's a really cool test that you can do. This is one of my favorite restaurant tests that probably no one does. It's to test sense of urgency. This is a really cool one. So what I would do and we'll do this and like I'll have someone that's coming in for an interview sit in the farthest corner of the office and I'll, and I'll show you exactly what we do. But in a restaurant, you would sit them in the right side of the dining room, you know, and say, hey, wait over here. I'll be right with you. Then you walk over there and say, hey, we're actually going to chat over here. It's a little loud. And you walk as, you know, pretty quick pace to the other side. And when you get there, see how far they are behind you. Hmm. If they're right up on top of you, 
They have a good sense of urgency. And of course, you're getting the best version of this person, just like any new employee, the best version they're ever going to be is how they are in the beginning. Um, so that's a good sense of urgency test. So I'll do that and, 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 and I'll come to the door, open it like you're going to call a patient back and say, hey, we're going to interview straight down the hallway over here in the back. And I'll hold the door open and right when they get to the door, I'll sort of take off and then see, see if they keep up with me. And that's just one way to gauge sense of urgency. And, and that's important. If you want to learn and we've figured out that you're friendly and you have a sense of urgency, there's a great chance you're going to be successful, at least in my book. Um, because all, all these jobs, whether it's a restaurant or in a medical practice that aren't provider specific and you don't need specific training, we can teach you. We can teach you any of it. So um, we just want people that are going to learn. And the other thing is, is we also don't hire a lot of people with medical experience for these roles. We hire people with customer service experience that understand sense of urgency, understand being friendly, understand, you know, that, that it's not the, you know, the patient's going to wait for us because we're the doctor. Like that traditional medical mentality that that you've, you've probably experienced and I've experienced as a patient is just not okay in my book, just because, I mean, we're humans, it's not okay to treat anyone like that. Um, but also if you're trying to run a business, you know, you need to provide an environment that is going to um, um, allow for not only repeat customers or patients, but, you know, word of mouth. And that's the strongest thing. If you can create someone going home and going, I went to this doctor today and like, what an experience it was. They were friendly. They spent a long time with me. They ran on time. Like nobody does that. And if you can do that, then obviously you're going to be successful. So I hope I answered the question. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I love that. So Matt, our audience for the podcast consists of both people who are interested in the healthcare field, but also those in the real estate arena. What can you tell me about your real estate strategy and how that complements your broader business strategy? That's a, it's a good question. So when we partner with existing practices, a lot of the times, you know, we're, we're kind of stuck with what's there because they have a lease and they have space and parking and all those things. Um, but when, you know, about half our practices, we started from scratch, whether it was a doctor leaving a practice and opening a new one or even moving across the country. Um, so in those scenarios, we, we, what's really important is where it is in relation to highways and access because we will we'll run TV and radio ads in a lot of these places. Um, we, we, we focus a lot on, on SEO in certain parts of the, the, the areas too, where it's dense. So it need, there needs to be appropriate parking. It needs to be easy to find. But not only that, if you look at like, you know, for example, in the, in, in, in let's say in the Valley in, in Phoenix, for example, you have the 101, which is like 495 in DC that runs around the city. You have the 10 that runs across and then you have the 17 that runs north to south. I think I got those right. Um, right. So if we're going to put one office in the city, you either want to be at the intersection of the, the cross section of the two that run vertical and, 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 and horizontal, or you want to be where one of them touched the, the round, like the big circle, essentially. So that way that if you hear a TV ad and you live 20 minutes away and it's only 20 minutes on a highway, it's not that big of a deal. But if you're, you know, navigating through the city and you have to deal with parking and it's hard, um, you know, that's, that's so important to us. So from a real estate standpoint, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be where med where medical in, in a medical building or anything like that because in most cases you're not going to get walk-ins, right? You know, you can build refer like a, a relationship with your refer with a, with a referring practice in the building, but at the same time, it's just like any other type of sales. You go in, you tell them like, hey, this is what we do, this is why we're different, here's how we help people. But if they've been referring to another ENT and are happy for the last ten years, odds are you're not going to get that referral base anyways. Um, unless something changes. So 
you know, as long as you're in a dense area and you're around where, you know, the, where it's easy to get to, that's, that's, that's paramount parking in, in an urban area is paramount in our DC practice. There's only like three or four medical buildings in the West end of DC. The parking's terrible. It's hard to get to, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing, but it, it's in the medical area. So people are sort of used to dealing with that, which we didn't really know. And that's okay. I mean, you got to pay, if you stay longer than an hour, you're paying 20 bucks for, for the parking. Um, we're near the metro, which in an urban area is important too, but it just needs to be accessible. I mean, so we can get there by Uber, you can get there by bus, you can get there by metro, and obviously we have parking. But there's some medical buildings that don't have parking. So the fact that we have it is, is better. But in the in the in the fresh startups, like for example, we opened a practice in LA. You know, we spoke to our marketing, uh, the guy that does our TV and radio. Hey, in your experience, obviously there's tons of traffic in LA. So if somebody hears an ad in, in West Hollywood, they're probably not going to go to like Thousand Oaks or go to you know Long Beach. Um, and, and the problem there is when you advertise like the, 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 the net that you're casting is so big. So people might hear your ad in Temecula if it's TV or radio, right? Versus, and you're in Burbank where we are. So what we, what we learned is there's two highways that run across and one that runs down. So if you're going to be in LA at all and you want any level of accessibility, Burbank was it. So it's going to be Burbank or Glendale. So we're right by the Burbank airport. Um, and in the, the highways, I can't remember which ones they are. Um, I'm sorry about that, but, um, that was the best one to be able to capture people. Because if you go out to the other side of the burbs, I suppose, like Thousand Oaks or Simi Valley or something like that, it, it, it's sort of isolated. And then you can go to the west side. But I mean, nobody's really traveling through the west side of LA because there's so much traffic. It's really hard. Like we're about to partner with a practice that has an office in Marina Del Rey and in Long Beach. And I mean, just just trying to go from one of those to the other in the middle of the day is you know pretty difficult, even though it's not very far. So just, just considering all of those things. And I mean, I know that sounds probably like a cookie cutter answer, but they're important. And a lot of people don't think that most doctors will go, you know, I want to be over here because it's near my house or it's near where I work out or it's near where my kid's school is. It's near where we hang out or whatever that might be. And that might not necessarily be the best place. You know, maybe there's a place five minutes away that if you live 20 minutes away, it's way more convenient for you to go. I'm going to go here versus I'm going to go over here. So um, that just all, all things to consider, I suppose. Yeah. So Matt, once you have the site selection then completed, um, which I, I, I think is very interesting and I don't think it's cookie cutter. I mean, it, it sounds like you give a lot of thought and consideration to that. How do you then decide, you know, is there going to be a personal guarantee whose name is going to be on the lease? Is there going to be a corporate guarantee? How do you go through some of those sort of business analyses on your, uh, if you're leasing, for example? Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a great question and a challenge a lot of the time. I mean, in our first practice, we had to do a personal guarantee. I mean, we were pretty much Dr. Khan and I leveraged everything. Um, and so, you know, we had to do whatever they wanted, but now, um, we, we haven't given a personal guarantee. I don't think in, in, you know, maybe after the first couple of practices, we haven't had to, um, which is great. Um, we have really strong financials that have a few different practices, specifically capital. So um, we, we will do corporate guarantees on those a lot of the times. Um, and that's okay with me because, you know, the, the, at the you don't want that much. I don't want to say built up risk. And, and when I look at risk, there's two different types of risks that I don't think people realize. There's there's a theoretical risk and there's actual risk. So like, I'm going to give a little side before I go there. So uh, I'm scared of heights. 
we go on this 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 is actually really great i'm going to give doreen a shout out here from um prepare to roar and the riverbend group there she's based in atlanta she did a lot of like you know behavior style profiling for us at our old company um, we actually had her at our first meeting and taught taught about different behavior styles and how you communicate um you know to somebody that like for for you for example if i'm you know sitting and looking at your desk and you have pictures facing out to me that means you're probably someone that is like you know, engaging and, and wants to be friendly and wants everyone to be in harmony, as they would say. So I would ask you questions about those. But if you were someone that sat down and I could only see the backs of your pictures because you're looking at them, then you're somebody that's more closed off like me to the point, you know, doesn't probably want to have small talk, right? So it, things like that. But so we went on this thing. I think we were in, we were in Belize and we had to, um, I think it's, per, is it per, propel down this, like into the sinkhole down a wall. You're essentially like hooked up to like a, not a bungee cord, but you, you kind of rappel down the wall and I'm terrified of heights. Like this thing, this is my worst nightmare. And she talked about theoretical versus actual risk. We were with people that like trained, you know, people that jumped out of planes and like did this for the military. Right. So the risk is only theoretical. These they're experts. They're helping you. It's not an actual risk. Jump off the side of this mountain essentially and go down. Right. So, um, you know, I learned, I, I try to think of things in theoretical versus actual terms. And so if you fast forward to, you know, if is, is capital breathe free, going to corporate guarantee the Frederick breathe free office, right? Which is in Frederick, Maryland, about 90 minutes away. You know, um, the doctor's been there established. He's leaving the hospital. His, you know, his wife's a primary care physician. You know, she'll be able to like drum up some referrals in her practice, depending on what their rules are with their ACO, which is essentially a, a group that a referring group. Um, and he's been there long enough and has a good enough name. And we know that we can market there. We know that ZocDoc, which is something that we use in our more urban markets, works well because D.C. is ZocDoc's second biggest market. New York's its first. So we know that we have all of these things in favor. So it's more of an act. It's a theoretical risk that to, to corporate guarantee that. Right. So. I guess that's how we look at it. Um, there's other ones. There's a couple ones that we did where we had to have, instead of that, we did like a letter of credit through the bank where it burns down, you know, every, for the first like three or four years. And so that's easy because all you have to do is, is have that money there, which we have a line of credit, right? So we use a letter of credit that burns down. There's really no cost to it outside of generating the letter. So that's, that's preferred in some cases, but, um, you know, we, we definitely just tell people now, like we're not doing a personal guarantee. You know, we've, we have enough history. You can see the financials from every single one of our practices. We're just, you know, we're just hopefully we're not going to do that. Um, you know, and I know for, for solo practitioners or new practices without a history, I mean, that's probably the reality, you know? And then obviously if you're like a, a really well-established um, landlord versus like we've looked at buildings where it's like a, it's owned by the doctor that has the suite on the right side, and he's leasing out the suite on the left. That's always going to be tough. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you've experienced it. You know, it's, it's, it, there's, you know, obviously no TI involved and no free rent and you just need to take it as is and you need a guarantee. And I want like, you know, your wife's guarantee and all that stuff. So um, it just sort of depends on also, as you know, I'm sure people listening know, you know, what kind of landlord you're, you're dealing with and what their appetite is for, I don't want to say risk, but I guess theoretical or actual risk. Right. So, you know, I think that sort of kind of depends. I don't know if that answers it or if there's a side question that you have that, you might want some clarification on. No, that, that makes a lot of sense, Matt. Thank you. So switching gears a little bit to, you know, maybe it's real estate, maybe it's not, but, but over the past four and a half years, since you founded Breathe Free, what's been kind of the biggest shift or the biggest hurdle that you've had to surmount? That's a really, 
I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of them. Um, you know, one of them's, one of them's physician selection. Um, cause we made some choices, you know, based on more necessity sometimes in the beginning where it's like, who's willing to sort of take the leap with us because we don't have a ton of, you know, history. We don't have a ton of, uh, proof. It's more theoretical of, of what can happen than, than what's happened in the past. So, you know, we, we, we started in the end of 2018 and we thought like by this time we might have like a couple offices, you know, but it's grown like wildfire. So that was one. Um, how do we pick the right people? And now we've learned a lot. Now we're really good at that. But in the beginning, that was tough. I mean, COVID was tough. We started our second office in Dallas, Texas. It was a well-established practice um, in Fort Worth. And then we have a satellite office that was in South Lake. Now it's in Irving, which is essentially near the DFW airport, essentially. Right. Yeah. The tor- more towards the city, though. Um, and we started February 1 of 2020. And so after like March, you know, we couldn't travel anymore. Well, I was still traveling, but I mean, I was on airplanes with two people from DC to, from da- from DC to Dallas, literally one person, two people. Um, it was crazy. Um, and so, you know, there's all of the, you know, I mean, the uncertainty, like what's going to happen? Are we putting ourselves at risk? And then we loaned money to the practice there, which is what we normally do so that, that the doctor doesn't take a hit while we're, you know, adding infrastructure and things. Um, and we didn't have any money then. It was just Dr. Kana and I, we didn't have all these practices, right? So that was sort of a personal loan, essentially. And then the Texas Medical Board forced them to close and made elective procedures. You know, you couldn't do them, whether they were in the office or not. And so, you know, that was challenging. What what we didn't know at the time was, is that that was going to push more people our way. The next two offices we opened were physicians that were employed by either a hospital or a group, and they were significantly limited by the hospital or the group. For example, they're you know, one of them's in Virginia and they were, they're essentially, most of their pay came from their RVUs that they, which is relative value units, essentially how, you know, procedures and physicians are paid based on their work. And most of that comes from the operating room and Virginia didn't allow elective procedures for most of 2020. So the doctors were like literally making no money and they had no control over it. Whereas in a private practice, you could, I mean, it's all risk, right? So you could decide what you want to do. So the next two practices I don't know if they would have happened without COVID. Um, and now that you have four, the jump doesn't feel as big. But navigating that was hard. And then once we got through 2020, we kind of realized, all right, it's not, you know, it's it, as long as we're, we have precautions and things like that, we're, we're probably going to be okay for most folks. But we still obviously, you know, had to do tons of, you know, things in the office to make sure people felt comfortable and that everyone was safe. But we, you know, but what it felt like in March wasn't what it felt like in January of the following year. So um, that was a huge, a huge obstacle to deal with. And, and most practices move to telehealth only and, you know, calls only and things like that. But, you know, so it, that was really challenging. And, you know, we were doing, we, we stayed in person in, in DC, which was our only practice essentially. Um, and we did three days on, two days off for all the staff because we had way less patients coming through, of course. So we, and we paid everyone the whole time, didn't lay anyone off because, it's funny because the doctor's mentality always is to, we should close, you know, we have to lay people off. Like this is a scary time. And that's what happened. But, but my mentality was what happens when they turn this thing back on? What do we do then? So I go to my dentist who, who I loved, you know, the only dentist I've ever liked, you know, and she's like, I just have no help. We laid all of our staff off. They all went and found other jobs. I can't hire anyone. And it's just like, I'm like, I'm so glad that we didn't do that. We kept everyone because we knew. And, and and not only that, if we, one other concern that I had personally 
was if we make this decision to close, it's March, you know, 14th or whatever, you know, it's March 21st, we decide to close, right? What if the city on April 15th mandates that we close? Now, how long are we closed for? What happens then? Let's just be safe, do, do everything we can, clean the rooms, have, you know, air purifiers, you know, masks, gloves, whatever, um, way less people. You know, we can't have multiple people waiting in the waiting room, clean the waiting room every hour, all the things that we did, um, you know, put the plastic up around the to protect the staff and all those things. So um, and any of the procedures that we did, honestly, for probably six months, it was just me and the doctor. I, we didn't have any of the staff do any of that. So um, I, I assisted in all those. And obviously, like, if we're going to do that, that's that's a decision that we had to make. And we didn't want to put anyone at, at risk. So, um, you know, we didn't do a lot of them, but we still did some. And, you know, it, 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 that was, I mean, that's probably challenging for every business. And it was, it's sad to watch like the, all my favorite places around the, you know, in DC in that area, you know, there's not a lot of residents. So, I mean, all the restaurants and bars and things like that closed and, you know, it was just a really challenging time in general. So I, I, I have to say that's probably the biggest hurdle. And now it's obviously it's passed, um, for, for the most part, but, um, you know, it sort of, it, I hate to say that it helped us, but it, it sort of kind of did. So. Um, I don't know if you have any, you know, want to have any follow up questions to that, but that was something that, you know, that was a big deal in ENT. Actually, the one of the biggest ENTs, uh, or what I say biggest, one of the most prominent ones wrote a paper about how, you know, nasal endoscopy, which is something that's standard of care in nearly every, you know, nasal visit that you have, which is a little telescope going in your nose, um, how that essentially activates all of these things that, you know, all these spores or whatever that, you know, COVID, how where COVID lives and how dangerous it was to do and things like that. So it was just, it was a really challenging time. Um, and a lot of ENTs, like we have a few different practices that were like, we would have went out of business if it wasn't for working with you a hundred percent. Like there's no doubt in my mind, we wouldn't have made it through COVID. So I think that's really, I can imagine very satisfying, you know, to say, look, we came through this stronger because of, you know, the model that we had in place and trusting that trusting the system um, is incredibly courageous. I think that's really cool. So Matt, um, I know you travel a lot. What does work-life balance kind of look like for you right now? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I try, like we used to have these courses and, you know, you could read books about like the, you know, the CEO mindset and like how to do all these things in the morning. And I, I just, I, I want to say I subscribe to that, but I just don't. Um, you know, I think I think when you're running a business that's growing, you have to be available. And then when you have people on the, you know, in Pacific time, you have people on Eastern time, you have people in the middle. You know, when I'm out here in Arizona, half the year it's Pacific time. So if I wake up at 630, it's 930 on the East Coast and I'm going to have a million phone calls and emails. And so the first thing I have to do is make sure there's nothing emergent. So what I'll do is look and if there's nothing emergent, I, I can let it be and do what I need to do. Um, but that's that's one thing. And then also... Um, as it relates to, you know, it, 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 if I'm out East, you know, the West coast is going till eight o'clock. Right. So, um, work-life balance is, I, I, luckily for us, there's not really a lot going on on the weekend. So I try to disconnect, um, a lot. I try to disconnect, um, you know, but it, it, it I try to be available. Um, I don't want people, and maybe this isn't the right thing to say, because a lot of people don't really believe that they should always be available. And I don't want people to think that they're ever bothering me. I don't want someone to feel uncomfortable. It doesn't matter who they are, um, you know, how long they've been with us, you know, what role they're in. You know, it's an open door policy across the board, whether it's positive or negative. 
Um, you know, I always want people to reach out and be able to contact me. Of course, there's things that all that I'm better at delegating at now, which when you start a business that, you know, where you're like, I don't know when my next paycheck's coming because we didn't get a, we didn't essentially take any money from the practice. I didn't receive a paycheck, so to speak, for nine months. Um, part We didn't start, you know, that was from when I left my job and moved to the East Coast. And, you know, we didn't start the practice for a few more months based on some, you know, things that you learn about signing leases and things like that, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But, you know, um, I just want to be available. So, I, I try to, I try to disconnect at night. I'll like do things like leave my phone. If I go to dinner, you know, with my wife or something like that, like try to, you know, put my phone in her purse or something like that. And just nothing could really be that important. Um, but you know, there, I'm going to be more available than most. Um, and I know work-life balance is important, but I don't want to say we're running a sprint, but it feels like a sprint, you know? So I want to be available. So it, it's hard to, that's a really tough question to answer. And that's one of my, you know, personal challenges is, each year goes by, like, where can I find more time, you know, to, to kind of disconnect. So uh, I would love if, if anyone listening has any great strategies or philosophies or maybe something that they've read um, or, or subscribe to, I would definitely love to know. Thanks. Well, Matt, um, thank you so much for your time and, and sharing your expertise. Um, I guess, speaking of availability, if, if listeners want to get in contact with you, what would be, what would be the best way to do that? Yeah. So there's a couple things I'll give, I'll throw my emails out there. If you, if you go to nationalbreathefree.com, you can click, um, I think request information that goes directly to me, but my, I have two emails. They're both Matt, M-A-T-T at nationalbreathefree.com and capital breathe free. And that's capital, like the capital building with an O. So C-A-P-I-T-O-L breathefree.com. Um, I think my phone, my cell phone might even be on my LinkedIn. Um, you could you know, text me. I mean, I don't know if I should get my phone number. It doesn't matter to me. Um, 202-423-7825. So shoot me an email, text, give me a call. Um, if you have any questions or some ideas on work-life balance, that would be awesome. Great. Well, Matt, thanks again. And thanks to all our listeners. Have a great day. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.